Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a series of shootings in the past few days in which victims making everyday mistakes such as ringing the wrong doorbell, entering the wrong driveway or getting in the wrong car that looks like yours result in being killed or gravely injured. We will discuss the change in the country's laws pushed by the NRA that have allowed legalized murder in 33 states based on stand-your-ground laws which have replaced duty-to-retreat laws aimed at avoiding confrontation into a selective right to kill. Joining us is Carolyn Light, Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Program in Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies at Harvard University. She's the author of That Pride of Race and Character, The Roots of Jewish Benevolence in the Jim Crow South. And the latest book is Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense. Then we'll look into how Dominion's win of $787.5 million from Fox News is a loss for the rest of us who were denied the opportunity to see Tucker Carlson and other Fox hosts squirm on the witness stand when confronted by their own true statements about the lies they repeatedly told. Meanwhile, we continue to subsidize Fox News via our cable bills, whether we watch it or not. Joining us to discuss the need for a movement to free us from paying to be poisoned by Fox News is Harold Meyerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of the American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications, and his latest article at the American Prospect is Dominion, Fox, and Us. Then finally, with the Supreme Court extending the deadline for a decision on a nationwide ban of a medical abortion pill from midnight tonight to midnight on Friday night, we will speak with Carol Sanger, a professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. Her latest book is about abortion, terminating pregnancy in the 21st century. We will discuss whether the far-right majority on the Supreme Court who recently took away a woman's bodily autonomy, will ban the main safe alternative left for abortions as they choose between continuing their moral crusade or accommodating big farmers' business needs. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Carolyn Light, who is Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Program in Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies at Harvard University. She's the author of That Pride of Race and Character, The Roots of Jewish Benevolence in the Jim Crow South. And her latest book is Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense. Welcome to Background Briefing, Carolyn Light. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Carolyn. And just yesterday, in a parking lot just outside of Houston, Texas, two teenage cheerleaders were carpooling. One of them went to what she thought was her car, and there was a man sitting in the passenger seat, and she went back to a teammate's car, and then this man came over to the car, 25-year-old Pedro Rodriguez, and she wound the window down and was about to apologize when the guy shot both her, Heather Roth, and then her cheerleading teammate, Peyton Washington, who is in serious condition. And then just three days before that, in upstate New York, 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis was shot dead when the car she was in um, pulled into the 
driveway at the wrong address. And then two days before that, 16-year-old a black teenager, Ralph Yarrell, was shot and injured in Kansas City, Missouri, by an 85-year-old man whose doorbell he rang after going to the wrong address to pick up his siblings. So welcome to the Wild uh, West, Caroline. What do you make of this? Exactly, exactly. I mean, it, it certainly does look like our obsession with not only firearms, but also lethal self-defense or claims of self-defense are yielding some pernicious results in this past just a couple of weeks. Um, there, there have long been many tragic stories of armed individuals shooting first, asking questions later, resulting in devastating consequences for young people who make innocent, harmless mistakes. Who hasn't driven into the wrong driveway by mistake or tried to turn around once you've become lost? Who hasn't knocked on the wrong door by accident, maybe getting the wrong address? Um, who hasn't mistaken a car for your own. I mean, these are harmless mistakes. And we're seeing, um, we're seeing these young people um, killed in some cases. Thank heavens, um, Ralph Yarl, the, the young boy in um, Kansas City is, is at least I believe is going to recover um, from his physical wounds. But imagine the kind of trauma this young man has to carry with him for the rest of his life. Um, because somebody decided to shoot him through their glass door. So yes, indeed, these are these are some staggering, um, horrific consequences of our obsession with firearms. And Caroline, your book Stand Your Ground: A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense. It traces the history of how there used to be the law was based upon what was called duty to retreat from danger. And mm -hmm. then under pressure from the NRA, that has been transformed into the standard ground laws, which essentially become a selective right to kill. And I believe it started, did it not, in Florida, the standard ground laws? And the case exactly. was promoted by the NRA. So the NRA's fingerprints exactly. are on standard ground, are they not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and as you mentioned, they started in Florida in 2005, and they have now spread in some form, and they vary quite a bit, um, to uh, approximately three, two-thirds of our states have some version of a stand-your-ground law that essentially removes the duty to retreat wherever you may legally be. So instead of just the castle doctrine, which says that you don't have to try to retreat from a threat in your home, you can respond with uh, violence, including lethal violence, in any place where you may legally be as long as you are reasonably or, or are seen as being reasonably acting out of fear for your life. Um, or, or in some jurisdictions, including Missouri and Florida and several other states, you can use lethal violence um, when you catch somebody in the process of committing a forcible felony, which is property crime. So, you know, if we look at our ordinary criminal law, um, if you're arrested for stealing something, the, the uh, punishment is not death. And yet these laws tend to license armed individuals to take a life in response to the commission of a forcible felony or a crime against property. So truly, it is, it is shocking. Um, to your question about the history, I, I want to say that in the United States, we've long had the Castle Doctrine, which enshrines a right of homeowners to protect themselves within their homes um, from a threat and home without retreating. However, these have never been equitably enforced because think of who could own a home back in the early republic. Well, traditionally men, traditionally white or European-descended men, indigenous people could not defend their homes from settler colonization, um, nor could enslaved people defend themselves from violence or defend their homes from their enslavers. Um, and women also didn't really have the right to defend themselves from their largest statistical threat, their own husbands or ex-husbands or intimate partners. So there's actually a long legacy of the inequitable distribution of self-defensive violence in this nation. And we're seeing that play out in some of these cases. Well, there are already, uh, what, 33 states with stand-your-ground uh, self-defense laws, 
and uh, 13 million civilians currently licensed to carry uh, concealed firearms. I believe that's increased considerably. And just recently, Florida Governor DeSantis, in secret behind closed doors, signed a, a bill allowing concealed carry across the board without any licenses in Florida. So is it as bad as it was with the original Stand Your Ground law in 2005? He's putting it on steroids, isn't he? Exactly. And and I'll just add to that, that Florida became, I believe, the 26th state. So over half of our states now have um, permitless carry, also called constitutional carry, which essentially allows any any law-abiding citizen can carry a firearm into public space without a license or any training at all. In other words, you can carry around a firearm into public space without even knowing fully how to use it safely. And we are certainly seeing the consequences of that in multiple jurisdictions where people see guns as the primary response to any kind of conflict, including road rage, including an encounter with someone who they don't know accidentally getting into their car. Um, We saw a horrific case um, back in October where a 19-year-old, a young man celebrating his birthday, got into a car that he thought was his Uber and was shot dead on the spot. And one of the consequences of the stand-your-ground legal universe is that if you claim you are acting in fear for your life, it's very hard to be charged with a crime. So no one's been arrested in the shooting death of this young man named Carson Senfield, who died on his birthday in October in Tampa. So we just keep seeing um, deadly examples of what these laws actually do to our lived experience. I'm hoping that um, given all the recent examples over the past week, that maybe people are starting to pay attention. But already statistics indicate that there's been an uptick in gun-related homicides linked to Stand Your Ground. Uh, The increase of between 8 and 11 percent in homicide rates, which translates to roughly 700 additional deaths each year. And in Florida, the Stand Your Ground law has increased these so-called justified and otherwise unlawful killings with the study finding that there's a 32% increase in firearm mm-hmm. homicide rates. And then another study showed mm. that a 79% increase in cases where the mm. assailant could have retreated to avoid a confrontation. Yes. So yes. It's, it's almost like people uh, are, t- are taking advantage of knowing that they'll get off scot-free rather than avoid a confrontation. Yeah. I mean, that's it's, what it's I daggering. find scary. <laughs> it's, it's terrifying. It, it's also mystifying because as you just mentioned, the data, the evidence, the empirical data from public health and criminological studies inevitably and irrefutably points to an increase in firearm homicides and injuries in the wake of the passage of these kinds of laws, not just stand your ground, but also the deregulation of firearms that results in constitutional or permitless carry. So the more guns in circulation, the more guns in the hands of civilians, especially untrained, unlicensed civilians, the more firearm deaths and injuries we're going to continue to see. And furthermore, I'll just add another alarming fact Suicides, gun suicides, we tend not to pay as much attention to them, and yet they are overwhelmingly the majority of firearm deaths are suicides, self-inflicted. So we are literally, as a society, we are killing ourselves with, with these firearms that are in such high circulation right now. So, yes, the death and destruction is absolutely breathtaking. Well, just a recent study came out indicating that young kids in this country are more likely to die from firearms than from traffic accidents. True. Absolutely. Yes. And we see this from the almost quotidian um, repetition of mass shootings that take place in schools, in places where kids are supposed to feel safe to study. 
Um, and they're not safe because no matter no matter what, and we can see the kinds of policy interventions that, say, the NRA and the politicians who support and are supported by the NRA keep proposing, which are things like um, put armed teachers in the classroom, arm all the teachers, or add more armed student resource officers in the schools. And we can see time and time again, Uvalde is just one of many examples. These policy interventions do not help one bit. So the death toll continues to spike. And we have policymakers who are so indebted to the very extremist gun rights lobby that they won't dare stand up to them with proposing common sense gun regulations, which, by the way, are actually supported by a majority of firearm owners. So a majority of firearm owners in this nation actually support common sense firearm regulations. And and yet we can't get them passed because we are in a stalemate with with this very powerful extremist guns everywhere lobby. But there's also a racial component in, in terms of disparity, because in terms of these stand your ground laws, the white Americans are much more likely to find a successful self-defense claim if they kill black people. Yes, yes. And I would argue, too, in addition to that, there's a gender component as well. So in addition to all the empirical evidence that has been gathered by criminologists and other scholars over the years to show that when whites claim to stand their ground against black and brown people, they are much more likely to be exonerated. We can also see the way in which stand your ground laws have been promoted by elected officials and lobbyists as a solution to gender violence. Very often, especially in Florida with the passage of the very first stand your ground law, many folks in the NRA and elsewhere promoted these laws as a way for women to protect themselves from threatening criminals and threatening gender violence and sexual violence and rapists, etc. However, when women try to defend themselves with firearms or other weapons or any kind of force against their largest statistical threat, and by the way, the largest statistical threat of all women is not dangerous strangers lurking in the bushes. It's their own husbands, boyfriends, and exes. When a woman stands her ground against her largest statistical threat, these stand-your-ground laws very frequently leave women just criminalized, going to prison. In other words, stand-your-ground laws often don't apply to women who try to protect themselves from their most likely threats. And we can see this time and time again. Marissa Alexander is an example from Florida. In her case, she didn't even shoot and kill anybody. She shot a warning shot to get away from her abusive, estranged spouse, and she spent years in prison. Um, and so we can see there are many, many cases where women try to protect themselves and invoke stand your ground, and yet it doesn't apply to them. So I want to emphasize that we need to think uh, simultane simultaneously about the um, white supremacist and the patriarchal implications of these kinds of laws of justifiable use of force, also known as stand your ground laws. So, Caroline, like just in the last couple of minutes, then, is there any possibility? Because I understand a lot of law enforcement officials oppose these stand your ground laws because prosecutors are finding that they discourage prosecution and they impede proper investigations into these homicides. And I think we yeah. we could probably, I mean, out here in Hollywood, you know, a lot of our listeners are screenwriters. I'm sure you could write a, a screenplay where you can murder somebody and, and set them up in a situation that would where you could use the stand-your-ground excuse. Um, yes. In fact, I see that happen quite frequently. Um, there's a case in um, Florida in 2018 that kind of fits um, a kind of, I would say, a Hollywood narrative where in um, a, a white man who had a covert intimate relationship with a black man um, shot and killed him after inviting him over to his house in rural northern Florida for a sexual encounter and then claimed that he was attacked by a scary black man. And it was only through digital forensic technology 
that investigators were able to obtain cloud records that showed that the two men had had a relationship dating back at least seven months. Um, So in my mind, this is a case of intimate partner violence that resulted in a homicide and a premeditated one at that. However, the prosecutors, um, for the prosecutors, the burden of proof is on them. The defense doesn't have to prove that they were acting in fear for their life, but rather the prosecution has to prove that the defendant wasn't acting out of reasonable fear for his life. And when the only witness to the encounter is dead, you only have the voice of that one last man standing. So indeed, these are cases that do exist out in the world. And and as you said before, these laws actively encourage certain people to behave in a way that amplifies violence as a solution to every every problem, every conflict um, and turns it lethal. And so I do see people frequently weaponizing our nation's kind of obsession with a, a selective enshrined right to uh, lethal self-defense, because certainly we've never authorized this as an equitable right across identities throughout all of our nation's history. And I right. believe stand your ground laws only exacerbate that. And just in, in closing, stand your ground laws incentivize the person who allegedly is feeling threatened to kill the other person because then you don't have any witnesses to contradict you in your stand your ground case. So it's just absolutely insane. Exactly. I, th- exactly. I thank you for joining us, Caroline. I mean, it's uh, it's horrible to, to have to report on these young people being killed wantonly. But welcome to the NRA's America. That's exactly it. This is this is the NRA's America, and it's time we all stood up and resisted. So I, I hope this helps elevate these cases. Thank you so much for bringing me on. And again, I've been speaking with Caroline Light, who's Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Program in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Harvard University. She's the author of That Pride of Race and Character, The Roots of Jewish Benevolence in the Jim Crow South. And her latest book is Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how Dominion's win of $787.5 million from Fox News is a loss for the rest of us who were denied the opportunity to see Tucker Carlson and other Fox hosts squirm on the witness stand when confronted by their own true statements about the lies they repeatedly told. There is no Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of The American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at The American Prospect is Dominion, Fox, and Us. Welcome to Background Briefing, Harold Myerson. Always good to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And it looks as though Dominion decided uh, to accept $787.5 million from Fox. And Fox wasn't really obliged to make any kind of public apology. Their media guy made a brief statement, which was somewhat fleeting and meaningless. So to the extent that, that we weren't able to watch Rupert Murdoch on the stand and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and others, literally being cross-examined, they're good at dishing it out, but they would probably not do very well being questioned by a good prosecuting attorney. So to that extent, do you think the America has been cheated out of an important moment of reckoning? I think so, although I think we should conclude that the uh, revelations that were made in the depositions, which had been made public, uh, and the size of the verdict uh, kind of confirms what anyone who is serious about, you know, 
liberal values are just empiricism or, or fact-based reporting has long since concluded that, uh, you know, the relationship between Fox and news is, uh, you know, not a very strong one. And the relationship between Fox and propaganda is, is quite a strong one. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the way I look at this settlement and remember there, there was ample opportunity to reach uh, a settlement, you know, you know, months ago, uh, and it came only, you know, uh, just before the trial was uh, about to begin with opening statements. Uh, you know, is that essentially Rupert Murdoch was willing to pay uh, nearly eight hundred million dollars of Fox shareholders' money to avoid uh, having to, you know, go on the stand and uh, answer questions under oath about, uh, you know, his. Uh, uh, the the way his his company, uh, in a large sense, at his direction, has uh, has behaved. So uh, that was eight hundred million of the shareholders' money, uh, you know, to keep Rupert Rupert from uh, having to appear in public and uh, and under oath. Well, I do feel somewhat cheated personally because, as I say, the, these guys like Tucker Carlson like to dish it out, but they would wilt under questions. I'd love to have heard. Tucker Carlson answered the question, do you think that Donald Trump is what, what did he say, the devil incarnate or something? Yeah, yeah just about, just about. And he also, he, he, he also expressed great concern that any factual coverage of the election would reduce the share price of, uh, you know, of, of, uh, of Fox. And uh, I, I suspect he's paid in part in, uh, you know, bonuses come in the form of shares. So, uh, you know, that, that that was a pretty remarkable statement, too, that uh, all he was really concerned about was Fox maintaining its audience, even if that required uh, complete mass deception and, uh, you know, fantastical uh, accounts of what presumably uh, undermined the election. Well, when Tucker Carlson did this softball, pathetic interview he did with Trump just the other day, uh, he certainly didn't <laughs> uh, refer to him as a demonic force or a, a destroyer. He was completely supine and, frankly, quite pathetic. And Trump just rolled over him. Well, you know, if, if all if if you're a regular Fox viewer and don't see anything else, you may not actually know uh, about what uh, the, the the stories that were carried elsewhere. Uh, about uh, the emails in which uh, Carlson just, you know, said he thought Trump was a completely malignant force, uh, you may not know that. And so, you know, this is a little uh, sealed bubble. Uh, and, uh, it, it, you know, uh, the only way they can, they can even get away with that kind of uh, rollover uh, interview is uh, uh, hoping that their viewers really are impervious and isolated and cocooned uh, away from, uh, you know, the the facts that are reported everywhere but on Fox. Sure. And that would include the payout of $787.5 million. I, I'm sure none of that's yeah. on Fox News, right? So. Yeah, well, I, there's some stories about the very light, you know, news uh, coverage of that. And uh, it's not, and, and looking at the major national papers today, uh, you know, the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times have multiple stories about the uh, uh, the settlement and the size of the payment. Wall Street, you know, Wall Street Journal had one story. I mean, it was the lead story, but, you know, it's not something they, they've cared to, uh, uh, you know, go into in, uh, uh, in, in, in any great detail. So that's the, the modified version of Fox News uh, we, we see in the Wall Street Journal. So... One of the things that I find extraordinary, though, about Fox News is the extent to which you and I and all of our liberal and progressive friends, through their monthly cable bills, finance Fox News. That If Fox News lost all of its advertising, say they boycotted Fox News, uh, which they certainly should do, but let's assume that that happened, they'd still be in profit because they make so much money out of shaking down the cable com companies and extracting 
$2 per month from our bills. I mean, compare that to MSNBC that gets $0.33 cents a month, CNN that gets between $0.70 and $0.90 cents per month, and that which includes CNN and CNN Headline News, and Fox charges $2 a month, and they're about to shake down the cable companies for a $3 a month fee. So can anything be done? Can somebody start a national movement? not so much to cut the cable, but to force the cable companies to stop inflicting this payment on people who don't want to watch Fox News. Well, you would you would think, I mean, that there would be uh, a, a large number of uh, Americans of goodwill who would uh, be glad to be part of that that campaign. And I think it's it's it's, it's absolutely worth uh, worth getting going. I mean, I have cable. I guess what I mainly watch is Turner Classic Movies. Uh, and uh, now because of that, I end up uh, like you paying uh, uh, a share of the cable bill that uh, that goes to support Fox News, which I definitely do not wish to support. So yeah, I mean, I think that would be uh, a suitable uh, cause for some, you know, progressive institution or even some journalistic institution. You know, it'd be nice to get some journalism schools saying, you know, it, we really. Don't think in inflicting Fox News on a uh, uh, unsuspecting public, the, the part of the public that watches Fox News probably is somewhat unsuspecting, uh, you know, serves the cause of journalism or truth. So, yeah, I would hope someone would get uh, would get that kind of cause uh, up and up, up and running, you know, and uh, you know, nothing like uh, daily tickets outside uh, Fox's uh, Rockefeller Center or Sixth Avenue uh, headquarters uh, to uh, you know, get some publicity. Uh, I think that might be, uh, a, you know, a very good, a very good idea. So, Harold Marsden, in your latest article at the American Prospect, Dominion, Fox, and Us, you suggest that Rupert Murdoch and his son Lachlan should be deported. Now, Lachlan, of course, has a green card; he's not a U.S. citizen, so it might be right. easy to de- easier to deport him. Whereas <laughs> uh, Rupert Murdoch did become a U.S. citizen in order to take over a lot of television and newspapers because the, there was a restriction on foreign ownership. You could only have a 20% stake in media in this country. So he very conveniently became a U.S. citizen in order to, to build his empire here in the United States. But you also point out in your article, and I think it's absolutely accurate, that in the whole sweep of history... Rupert Murdoch has probably been as damaging to this country. The only other person you, you could find that has been as damaging to the United States as Rupert Murdoch, and of course you have to put Donald Trump into that category because they're, they're, yeah, kind sure. of, they're joined at the hip, those two. The only other person in history that has done similar damage would be uh, Jefferson Davis, who started the Civil War. Yeah, so, well, my, yeah my, my, my point being... Uh, it's hard to find anyone who, uh, you know, really kind of divided the country on a scale as large as Rupert Murdoch. You kind of have to go to the leading Confederates, and yes, also obviously Donald Trump. Uh, I mean, this 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 kind of of uh, polarization by whipping up, uh, you know, extremes usually doesn't <laughs> be so usually isn't as pervasive or as damaging as Rupert Murdoch. I mean, I, you know, I, obviously I kind of threw this out somewhat as a, uh, as a joke, but I mean, it, it you know, it, I defy anyone to name, uh, uh, name me an immigrant to the United States who's done more damage to the country than Rupert Murdoch. I mean, you know, I think that, uh, uh, you would have to think long and hard before coming up with, uh, you know, who, who might even be in, in second place. So, uh, uh, it, it's it's worthy of consideration. But of course, now that they've settled with Dominion for $787.5 million and Smartmatic, I think, is wants $2.7 billion from them, and that's coming up. And of course, uh, Dominion has also sued OAN and Newsmax and Rudy Giuliani and the pillow, my pillow guy and others, including that ridiculous uh, Sydney Powell woman. So the story's not gone away, but Frankly, right now, Fox is still free to attack our democracy, to go after minorities, to despoil, encourage the despoiling of the environment. 
and violating the truth. I mean, they made it clear in the discovery that we got from this Dominion case, the court filings, that telling the truth for Fox is bad for business. So are they going to be really held account for what what they've really done in terms of dividing this country? That, their big lie about Trump winning the 2020 elections, uh, in spite of the fact that he lost by 7 million votes, has metastasized into a bedrock belief amongst Republicans and amongst a good percentage of the country. It's radicalized thousands and thousands of armed Americans. It spurred them to storm the Capitol on January the 6th. And just more recently, uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband was attacked by a guy who was motivated by the same Fox News lies about stolen elections and demonizing the Democrats. So if you were to have a bill of indictment, it would be pretty long for what these people have done to America. Uh, Oh, absolutely. You know, and just all of the pretrial depositions are a de facto bill of indictment. They are, however, unfortunately not a de jure bill of indictment. But, you know, it's been anyone who is not in the uh, cocoon that Fox has woven over the past two decades at at this juncture uh, knows more about just how duplicitous and conniving uh, the network is. And that's uh, so that's the current state of play. They're they're not going to cease being duplicitous and conniving or dangerous. But, you know, I mean, I think they are clearly even more clearly than before uh, labeled for, for, for what they are. And they you know, the the settlement uh, should not end, uh, you know, uh, whatever kinds of protests against Fox uh, are are needed. Uh, Those need to continue and and grow. But just in closing, though, Harold, you and I, uh, unfortunately, are not going to uh, spur the American people to hold the Murdochs to account. A movement needs to happen. I mean, Obviously, Lachlan Murdoch, who lives in Australia, in spite of the fact that he supposedly runs Fox News, he is suing a small news website called Crikey, who basically said something that's true and obvious, which is that the Murdochs are responsible for dividing America and and motivating and inspiring the insurrection, all of which is just manifestly clear and true. So... Can they be held accountable? I mean, they are, obviously the fact that Lachlan Murdoch suing Crikey indicates that they're pretty thin-skinned about this. They must somewhere in their malignant and misanthropic souls must know that there's some truth to the accusations. Well, I, I, I think they do, and they feared, one reason they feared going to trial was that that would become even more apparent uh, to uh, to the public, that at least that they knew that the claims that were being uh, made about, uh, uh, you know, the, the conspiracy that kept uh, uh, Trump from winning a re-election, uh, that they knew that these were completely false. Uh, uh, as to what can be done, you know, that that's kind of up to uh, organizations, I guess, like Move On, Media Matters. I would take this uh, uh, fine that Fox has been compelled to pay as a starting point for organizing, uh, you know, uh, demonstrations and what have you, you know, directed at the cable companies and just uh, continuing to publicize the uh, Joseph Goebbels precedents that uh, Fox seems bent on following. Well, Harold Martin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always, always a pleasure, Ian. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of The American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at The American Prospect is Dominion, Fox, and Us. We're going to take a appreciation break back looking into whether the Supreme Court will ban the main safe alternative left for abortions as they choose between continuing their moral crusade or accommodating big farmers' business needs. I know it's true. Oh, so true. Cause I saw it on TV. I know it's true. Oh, 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Carol Sanger, who's a professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. And her latest book is About Abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century. Welcome to Background Briefing, Carol Sanger. Thank you very much. Thanks, Carol. And it's amazing how much we are talking about abortion. I mean, you've just written a book about it, but did you think it would, it would ever get to this, where, you know, you've got dueling law case, lawsuits before the Supreme Court, and now, of course, the Supreme Court, Justice Alito, who oversees the Fifth Circuit, just extended the stay on the lower court's decision until Friday night at midnight. Um, yes, I saw that. Right. So the man has too much time on his hands. Well, I mean, it's not a lot of time, but what do you think it indicates that they originally the stay was going to expire at midnight tonight, and they've extended it for two days? What do you think's going on behind the scenes here? Um, I mean, I think that that's you know until until we know, it's very impossible to know. But it sounds to me like um, it is. They had only given them three days in the first place to write their reply briefs. And um, this is a this is a hugely important decision that the court is taking, even though it'll only be a temporary decision because they'll have to they'll have to um, uh, have a full hearing to decide what what the result should be. But in the meantime, lots and lots of medical care hinges on how they how they decide this. So, I mean, one could say in the in hoping for the best that. He's really trying to see what the parties have to say that are that would enlighten him. Um, I don't believe that's probably true based on his decision in the Dobbs case, um, which was last June's case where they got rid of uh, Roe v. Wade in the first place. So when you ask, um, did I ever think we'd be here? I mean, I think everyone thought we would be without Roe, that that was going down that was going down the tubes, um, uh, and even if the decision that Alito gave was worse, actually, than I think anybody thought it was going to be. But where we are now is actually more complicated and worse than just losing Roe, because the one thing that was, I don't say cheering people up, because there was nothing very cheerful about having abortion be illegal in over half the states, but was the idea that at least we weren't going to go back to the 1960s and early 70s when um, abortion was last illegal. And uh, we weren't going to go back to the days where women had to go to Mexico, Japan, England, places where they went to get, to try to get a proper abortion. Um, because because we have uh, technology had stepped in and said, well, we've got something new and had been in play for a couple of years, which was the abortion pill. And so the abortion pill changed the stakes hugely about what it meant to have a regime of illegal abortion. Right, 23 years, though, Carol. (laughs) It's been on the market for 23 years. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It, it has, and in fact, it's so um, well. I would say popular because it's um, so efficient, and it's cheaper, and it gives you privacy when you take it. I mean, there are a whole bunch of reasons why you can one can understand why women would prefer to take the pill than have the abortion procedure. So, so no, my point wasn't. I mean, I I, I know that, that what we see is that women have really found it to be a terrific. Um, um, process for having for having a legal abortion, but but we uh, perhaps I'm not didn't grasp your point. But now that abortion can be made illegal in any of the states, although 17 states still have kept it legal, um, what this does is say what the court is saying is well we're thinking about taking away the backup 
plan for women who want abortions by removing the pill. Are we we agree about this? Yes. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is their second bite at the apple. They're absolutists. Right. They they want no quarter. They, and that's the frightening part is you just don't know. Uh, we know how conservative the Fifth Circuit is, but you know the Supreme Court is also packed with arch conservatives. Yes. So yes, and so I guess the question would be then, Carol, we know that what motivates the kind of arch conservatives that would chosen by this Opus Dei character, Leonard Leo. Yeah. There's a combination of religious fundamentalism and moral authoritarianism and laissez-faire capitalism. So in terms of laissez-faire capitalism, would the fact that it's not just the Justice Department, which has called for the Supreme Court to intervene, but it's also Danko Laboratories, and all of Big Pharma are weighing in. So how much... Do you think these ideological-driven justices like Alito and Thomas would be influenced in any way by corporate America saying, if you guys ban Mifepristone, you're going to upset the entire regulatory regime for all drugs in America and create chaos? Well, I think that's giving it a good shot and saying, well, let's appeal to them where they love it, which is uh, with with fair capitalism. But I don't think when it comes to abortion the same the same um, fidelity to to capitalism holds because um they're not what 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 they what what um alito made so clear was that it's as though this is an inevitable decision that we rid america of uh, abortion that it's necessary on moral grounds and i don't think that uh even even the the appeal to the you know big pharma is is going to work. I mean, for one thing, they you know they say they'll say go invent something else, earn your money somewhere else, because you're on the you're on the pharma you're on the wrong side of this. Um, but what pharma is, is is arguing is not just that they're not making a pro pro choice uh, case. They're saying this is far worse than just focusing on mifepristone. If this if this case if this decision holds, if uh, Judge Mazarek's decision holds, we're not we're not stopping with with um, the abortion pill. We're starting with the abortion pill, and now the judges apparently can, in their wisdom. Um, override, overrule uh, the decisions of the medical and uh, 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 scientific people who who inform the FDA and who who study these things very, who study these uh, these these medications very carefully and require um, you know years of, of testing and so on. And so it's not just that. Um, the abortion pill will go down, but we have no idea what other pills are are um, are going to, you know, have their head on the chopping block because there's something about them like contraception. Um, that would be a good one. We already had a huge fight at the FDA on Plan B, which is the pill that you take. You can take. Um, this is a fight that came up in the early 2000s. Um, you take if you have. Uh, unprotected sex, and you're afraid you might be pregnant, you have 72 hours to take this particular pill, which is generally called Plan B. And there was a lot of hanky-panky that went on with getting that approved for over-the-counter use. Um, It finally went through, but there was definitely unscrupulous behavior within the FDA uh, when, when that drug came up. Now we, the FDA, you know, 20 years ago, 23 years ago, um, went through its testing procedures and found that it was the, that mifepristone was safe and it was efficacious. So those are the two the two points that have to be met. But but there are tons of other drugs one could imagine, psychiatric medications or or other forms of contraception or we we, we can't we you can pick anything that someone doesn't like. And uh, so it's really an attack on the whole regulation of of medicine in the U.S. And, well, when you and mention, that is... Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. 
I was going to say, when you mentioned psychiatric drugs, for example, if the Supreme Court ruled in Josh Kaczmarek's favor and banned Mifepristone and threw the entire FDA regulatory process into chaos, groups like the so-called Church of Scientology, which is opposed to medicine and particular psychiatry, um, they would sue, right, to have various drugs banned. Yes, yes, they could. Well, they would. They would bring an action just like this um, Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, mm-hmm. which is the plaintiffs, which are the plaintiffs in this Texas case, and say, yes, there were mistakes. There were mistakes, and the the court, the uh, FDA, jumped the gun in approving the, the those particular psychiatric drugs. Yes, absolutely. I right. mean, it's it's uh, there's no limit to what someone can challenge. If, right, and they wouldn't have to provide evidence because the plaintiffs in this case in the Amarillo, Texas courthouse of this anti-abortion zealot, Judge Kaczmarek, yeah. their, their presentation was so ludicrously unscientific, <laughs> it made no sense whatsoever, but nevertheless, he dressed it up as though it was serious. And to some extent, the Fifth Circuit bought some of it, even added their right. own restrictions, and now you've got They're it little, before, yes, yes. before the Supreme Court. Uh, God no, it's quite. It's for women. This is this is quite devastating. What I wonder is, shouldn't Congress be upset because Congress, um, you know, made up the FDA? They decided that this was a good thing, and they were executing their duty of of taking care of the welfare of the people by having an agency like the FDA that would carefully vet. Um, you know, they vet our food, they vet and they vet our medicine, um, you know, FDA approved hamburgers. And Congress should feel very um, miffed and stifled if this if this is upheld because it's uh, overruling their authority. there's there's that angle too, which is it's not just the court, you know, coming up with its own sort of astonishing degree of power, but that they're taking it away from the legislative branch. So I'm surprised that there haven't been more arguments made on that, uh, uh, on that aspect of it yet. Um, but I think when it goes to a full hearing, that would be likely. Uh, it, 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 you know, we had this period in the U.S. called the progressive era, which was in Theodore Roosevelt, when when the whole the whole ethos was government should take care of people and have them live safely, and that science it was it was very science based for the 1920s. They didn't get all the science right, that's to be sure, but that was the thought that this is governmental power played out at, to its best. And now it seems to be swatted aside because of our new, um, the dominance of pro-life sensibilities, and 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 with it, with with the abortion pill goes all other forms of medication that someone will make a case for. Uh, So, so it's really very horrifying. And just to go back to your original question, it's. uh, it's worse than anybody thought, because I don't think we we imagined that we'd get mired down in so quickly in the abortion pill. I think we thought there'd be a debate about can you mail can you send the pill through the mails, and that that would have to get ironed out. And um, and but but not that they would say oh it's approval in the first place was erroneous and we're taking away the the pill in its entirety not just how you transport it but the 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 fact of having it so i don't know if you you know women are stockpiling um mifepristone now uh, uh, there was an article in the times new york times today about that and there's i, I don't know if you there's a second pill that ideally one takes with the mifepristone called um mifepristone, yeah. it's it's two pills and that's the that's the premier regime you take first you take the miffy and then you take the miso and they get you up to about a 99 percent success rate and they also 
make it easier for the woman because they work in, in sync with each other and they make cramping less severe. It, it's simply a, a better medical regime. Most of the most of the globe doesn't use mifepristil. They only use the misoprostol, the second drug, and it works. It only gets you to about an eighty-eight percent chance, you know, eighty-eight percent success rate, but it works, and it causes cramping, and you basically cramp the the embryo out, like like a miscarriage would do, and so it's more. Um, it's more painful, but it's not it's not unthinkable. So what I fear is that the next thing that will happen is somebody they will bring a suit to try to um, have misoprostol uh, kicked out of the regime as well. It's a little harder to do that because misoprostol is only used right now for abortions on an off-label use. That's not what it was invented for. So the rules about that are a little bit different, but they could actually, um, the courts could leave leave women with no medication at all, and then we would be back in a in a uh, in a dreadful um, pre-row situation where women were being injured in in aborting. And, and and that I think nobody imagined would happen again. No, no more coat hangers. Right, and it, it's it's unclear that that can be sustained. Just in closing, because mifepristone is also used for treat miscarriages and other medical procedures. Right. So, I think you've laid it out for us, Carol. As bad as it, as the <laughs> landscape ahead is, and well, uh, let's hope that's. Friday is a more cheerful day, okay. and that the court says, you know, uh, and that the court says we need to have a full hearing on this. In the meantime, women should be entitled to use this drug, even if they crimp it back to 16, you know, even if they make it the shorter period, uh, although there's no medical need for that. Um, we just have to hope for a little good faith. <laughs> well, <laughs> on laughed. that note... I yes. thank you, Carol. I appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> and Pleasure. again, I've been speaking with Carol Sanger, professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. And her latest book is about abortion, terminating pregnancy in the 21st century. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door.